Hello and welcome. My name is Shanna Whitaker with Saltbox Church, and we are so excited you found us and are carving out some time for King Jesus. So I invite you to put your phones down, your to-do list away, and open your hearts to receive the Word of God. Good morning. I want to look into the camera and welcome everyone who is joining us online, either right now or perhaps even after the fact. Uh, We have been uh, journeying through the book um, of Acts, and I'm going to do a strategic pause this morning to that journey, Um, and I want to talk about um, the Middle East, I want to talk about Israel, I want to talk about Hamas, I want to talk about how do we as Christians pray, okay? Because that's one of, I think, the main things is how how do we pray, how do we think, and if, if I were to say anything to us, it would be... Uh, one of my probably primary jobs as a pastor or as a leader, as a shepherd, um, is not to tell you what to think, but is to tell you how to think. In other words, I am not here to dictate what you think or what you do. No, 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 that would be weird. Uh, But what I am here to do is open up the word and help you begin to rightly divide the word of truth so that you know how to think Christianly, how to think Jesusly, how to think um, Paulinely, if you will, about a crisis like we're facing right now. Sound good? So that's my goal, really, for today. So if I gave you an overview, uh, the title that I put on this today is, Is the God of the Bible the same as the God of the Koran? Or Koran, if you prefer. We're just going to open that thing right up. Sound good? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to run that question through three uh, New Testament scriptures. John 14, 6. I'll turn there in just a minute. Acts 4, 2 and Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And then I want to actually um, open up some things that you may or may not know as a New Testament Christian or believer. And if you're here and you're a doubter or you're an atheist, welcome to this journey. We're happy to have you here with us. Um, But I want to open up some things because there are four really challenging similarities uh, between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. We're going to talk about it. And then I want to flip it, and I want to go, okay, what are the primary differences between the two, and are these two, quote, revelations compatible? Okay, that's the question we're moving down to. And then at the end, I'm going to flip to Joshua 5. And I think there's a very special revelation in Joshua 5 through which almost it becomes almost like a sieve, you know, like a sifter, um, but almost like a sieve through which we can pass. What is God's intention Um, And how do we look at current events right now? And therefore, uh, then, how do we pray? Does that sound good? I know it's a lot. Um, But And then I'm going to end, actually, I've got two groups that we're connected with out of Nazareth. Now, who knows where Nazareth is? Israel, that's right. And who grew up in Nazareth? King Jesus, that's right. Was he born in Nazareth? No, but there are two Christian groups in Nazareth, and they've both issued a call to prayer. And I'm going to show you those at the end of this message. And uh, if you would like those, um, the call to prayer is on our welcome table in the back. You can grab those. Our small group questions are on the front. The call to prayer is on the back. But I believe one of the most powerful things we can do is look to believers in the Middle East who know what's going on, who understand what's going on, as they have a biblical orientation on how to pray. Make sense? So that's where we're heading today, okay? And if I preach, it'll be at this uh, Joshua 5 passage, because it is good. 
All right, so um, John 14, 6 and 7, we're going to set the table. This is King Jesus speaking. Scroll, turn, whatever you would like to do. See if I can find it here. John 14, 6. Jesus is speaking, so he answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is um, aligning with Old Testament, um, Exodus 3, I am. That's how God introduced himself to Moses. So I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's aligning himself with Yahweh God here. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. So Jesus is saying unequivocally the only way to enter the kingdom of God both now and in eternity is through him, Jesus. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well, for from now on uh, you do know him and you have seen him because you've seen me. That's right, Jesus. I don't mean me, Michael. I mean me, Jesus. So here is what I would also say is there's uh, many schools of current secular thought in this moment that would say um, Jesus is a moral man or Jesus is a good teacher or Jesus is a decent guy, or Jesus is a, you know, he's a, he's a great, whatever, theologian. But, but here's the thing. Jesus cannot simultaneously be a great theologian if he is not the son of God because he would be a liar. You follow me? So, so just like establish a baseline here. Either King Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, or he's a liar. Like, like there is no middle ground. So when people go, oh yeah, he's a great guy, or he's uh, smart, or he's like a great teacher, or you know, whatever, when they, when they throw something like that at me, I'm like, he can't simultaneously be great in what he taught, um, and uh, 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 he's, either a, a, um, he's either true, what he has said is either fully true, or he's a liar, there's no middle ground. Like if you really study the words of Jesus, that's what it comes down to. <coughs> Okay, John 14, 6. All right, I'm flipping over to Acts 4, 12. This is Peter and John preaching before the Sanhedrin. This is Peter who's answering here, Acts 4, 12. So this is after King Jesus uh, came to earth, lived, did three years of ministry, went to Jerusalem, was crucified on a cross, was dead, buried in a tomb, um, broke the bounds of death and hell, resurrected from the dead, um, revealed his post-resurrection body to over 500 people many, many times historically, and then he ascended back into heaven, which was like his coronation or the crowning of King Jesus. So he literally, I'm saying kind of like a crown, he became the world's rightful sovereign at that point. So this is how Peter is going to say it. Uh, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. So both these scriptures are very parallel, aren't they? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we might be Saved. Okay, crystal clear. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he is, if we'd have to get fully into the Greek to understand this, but when he says, I am, he's likening himself to Yahweh God in the Old Testament. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then Peter says, there is no other way under heaven that we might, any of us, be saved. <clears throat> Excuse me why I have my little seasonal cough there. Um, okay, and now I'm going to go to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. 
Philippians 2, it's to the right if you're flipping in your Bible, if you're scrolling on your phone, it's an easy switch. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing. This is a wonderful letter to the church in Philippi. And here is what he says here. Therefore, God exalted him. Who's him? King Jesus. That's right. You can read back if you like. But God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name. King of kings, Lord of lords, the world's rightful sovereign. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So that is saying that every knee is going to? So the question becomes, when is that going to happen? Because it doesn't appear that it's happening right now, does it? But what we have is the promise, and if we were to read the very end of the book, we could go to Revelation and I could show you, as King Jesus returns, in that returning, every knee will ultimately bow. Every tongue will confess. So let me pause there. I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're going to open up the challenging similarities between the God of the Quran and the God of the Bible. Um, a few years ago, I think it was maybe 2015, 2016, I don't know. could have been even 2014. But regardless, um, I had been a youth pastor at a denominational church, um, and I became like a, like a teaching pastor and the head of uh, staff. And so I had to hire someone to be the youth pastor, right? So I hired someone uh, to be the youth pastor. He came in, and during that transition, I was still doing some trips um, with the middle school and primarily the high school ministry. And one of the trips that we did um, is we uh, took, I think we took a train, although we could have taken vans, I can't remember, but we took them up to uh, Manhattan. And in Manhattan, we stayed with a really great evangelical Christian ministry organization that was doing ministry all over the city. And so for like maybe 10 days, we had students all over the city sharing Jesus, preaching, serving. Like it was a, it was a wonderful a time, wonderful um, little just place to be. And as part of that, um, this mission organization had a relationship um, with uh, a mosque, an Islamic mosque. And so what we did is we actually took a group of students and we went to the mosque. Now, is our Jesus, let me say it like this, is my Jesus ever afraid to go anywhere? No. Is he ever afraid to eat with anybody? No. Is he ever afraid to gather with anybody? No. So I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, no big deal. So we go to the mosque. And the idea is um, we're going to go and we're going to gather um, and ask some questions of the believers uh, in Islam there, the Islamic believers there. And uh, we also got to meet with the imam, which is like the prayer leader or, if you will, kind of the pastor of that group. So we're in the middle of um, downtown Manhattan um, and, you know, got to think. Now, what just happened, whatever it was, 15, 16 years earlier? 9-11, so all that is in the minds of, of our students, and we go in, and I'm encouraging them, so let's go in, and so we have to, uh, when you go in, you have to take your shoes off, and the, the gals have to put on a head covering, right? Now, the way I read the Bible, and, and if we were to send one of you as a missionary to the Middle East, like let's say there was a couple that we sent to the Middle East. If you were in the Middle East, and you entered um, a building that was a public building or a religious building, what would you, uh, as a female, what would you have to do? Cover your head. If we were today um, in Jerusalem and we entered the sacred area known as the Western Wall, which I might talk about that in a little bit if I get to it, um, but what would all the men do? 
we'd put a little yarmulke on our head. Now, that doesn't mean that we've aligned with that faith or we necessarily agree by covering, but we're being respectful. So I took this group of students in Manhattan and we take off our shoes, um, the, the females put on a scarf and we go in and we look around at what's happening and we sit in a circle with the imam and I asked him all kinds of Jesus questions. I didn't tell him much, but man, I asked him some stumpers. And we had a great time. And we got to pray for him at the end. He let us pray for him. I, he let us pray for their whole, the mosque. He let us pray for the worshipers that were there. Um, a call to prayer happened while we were there. And so on the way out, uh, we got to debrief with the students. And I am a, I'm a believer in it is okay to come to faith in Jesus, not having lots of information. But if you're going to walk with Jesus, at some point you ought to understand other faiths and other groups and what you believe and what they believe and why it's different. You hear me? And so that's what we did. So we just sat and talked. We debriefed with a group of students. Well, this was um, Instagram was well underway at this point. And so I took a, a selfie and next to me were a group of uh, our students and leaders. And in it were a number of females. And guess what was on the females' heads? A head covering, like a scarf, that's right. So I took a photo, and I posted it, and I put the whole theological framework around why we were doing it and what we were doing. And guess what happened in our local church? I was like, oh, I'm obviously a naive teaching pastor. So I had to come back and had to have some meetings and some conversations. And in the end, it was fine. But there's, here's what I want you to know, and why I even tell you this, is there's so much misunderstanding around this. And I want to be as diligent as I can this morning about giving you great clarity of biblical thought um, and intelligent thought, and then even a biblical worldview so you know how to interact with friends and neighbors and loved ones over what's happening today. Make sense? Okay. So, uh, there are four, uh, let, me, let me back up here. There's 8.1 million people alive on earth today. Eight, oh, excuse me, 8.1 uh, billion, I wrote million. Billion, I think I said million too, forgive me. 8.1 billion people alive on earth today. There's 2.4 billion Christians. There's 1.9 billion Muslims. And then the next three categories, I added them together, but there's 2.7 billion people that are either secular, Hindu, or Buddhist. And then, arguably, different people calculate this different ways, but there's arguably 3 billion people alive on earth today that are in a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ has difficulty or almost cannot penetrate. And that is part of our call. Small church as we may be. Sometimes I offend people when I go, we're just a small church. Well, I'm comparing ourselves to the... 2.4 billion Christians alive on earth today. I don't care if we're a church of 50,000. We're still a small church, aren't we? Yeah. We're a microcosm of the larger body of Christ. I love to, to stand at the ocean and feel small. I love to be a small part of the larger body of Christ that we are in. Okay. So... <clears throat> Some people, and there's been different things that have happened. There was an event, I think it was in 2016 that happened, and there was a professor even at Wheaton College that came out publicly and made this comment that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And occasionally I hear that, so that's why I wanted to sort of talk to you about that. Um, <clears throat> and I really want to take the, the perspective of a Palestinian Arab Christian and a Jewish Christian. And I, I was in Israel in 2018, and I had the privilege of sitting, and I may tell you about that if I get there, um, but I had the privilege of sitting with both Jewish believers and Palestinian Arab Christians. Now, if you're a Palestinian Arab Christian, you have shucked what? Uh, 
your Muslim faith, and you have stepped into being a Christian at great personal cost. If you're a Jewish believer, if you're a Jewish Christian, a completed Jew, a Messianic Jew, you can call it whatever, however you'd like to say that, but if you're a Jewish Christian, if you're a Jewish Jesus person, what have you shucked? Judaism. So I really, when I, want, when I navigate this, that's what I want you all thinking about is in the Middle East right now, both in Israel, in Palestine, um, in Iran, we could go all the countries of the Middle East. There are, there are Christians who are alive today, and I want to upgrade your thinking from simply nationalistic to kingdom of God. Okay? You follow me there? So let me even phrase that for you. The way I think of myself is first and primarily not American. I am first and I am primarily a member of the kingdom of God. I belong to heaven. I am like sojourning. I am passing through. If God gives me 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years, I don't know, but it's gonna be a blink, it's a breath, it's like a vapor, and then I'm gone and I take up, I, I go back to where I came from, the kingdom of heaven, and God created me and I'm going back to uh, live with God forever in eternity. Make sense? Okay. I am just passing through. So first and foremost, Michael Mattis, and if you're in Jesus and in Jesus is in you, first and foremost, you are a member of the kingdom of God. You are a member of heaven. You belong there. You're passing through. Earth is not your home. Your house is not your home. Your car, everything, anything you own and do, it is just temporary. We are just passing through and we are gonna go be with him in eternity. So Michael, I would say to you, Michael, first and foremost, um, is a member of the larger body of Christ, and then secondarily, I'm an American. And I'm a patriotic American, great. But I'm never going to allow my patriotism to take precedence over my membership in the body of Christ. You follow me? That's gonna be hard for some of you to hear. But my membership in the body of Christ, my relationship with King Jesus always takes precedent over who I, Michael is as a American. And if you drove by my house at any given time, we have an American flag that hangs on our front porch. I believe in that. But it is always subject to King Jesus. So one of the things I love about being in Washington, D.C. is, um, and my wife actually went to school there for a little bit, but they actually say that, that nothing is higher than liberty. That's the way I like to think of Jesus. Nothing is higher than King Jesus. Okay. All right, let's talk about uh, four challenging similarities between the God of the Quran and the God of the Bible. So, number one, um, if you examine the relationship between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran from like a purely existential or even like almost mathematical perspective, one who especially who wasn't a believer or hadn't studied diligently could easily conclude we're speaking about the same deity um, for after all, in both faiths, there is only one God, I think we got to acknowledge that, church. <clears throat> Number two, both Muslims and Christians believe that God is the creator, that he is omnipotent, that he is omnipresent, that he is omniscient, and that he is eternal. Okay, so, oh man, all right. So number one, if you look at it from a purely mathematical perspective, you could arrive at the conclusion that we're talking about the same God. Number two, we have similar beliefs in a, uh, a creator that is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and eternal. Now, let me further complicate this. Are you ready for the third complicating factor? If we were, if you were a Palestinian Arab believer, 
All right, you got that? You're a Palestinian. Sorry, are you Israeli? No, you're Palestinian. You're a Palestinian Arab Christian. So you're going to read a Bible that is written in Arabic. Okay, Arabic. So in your Bible, written in Arabic, and this isn't true of all Arabic Bible translations, but it's true of many of them. When um, they reference God in an Arabic Christian Bible, what word is used? Allah. It's complicated. Sally's looking at me. Now, in Arabic, the word God is Allah. Hang with me. <clears throat> Islam does not own the Arabic language. You hear me? Although it does dominate it. So Allah should not be a, quote, bad word for Christians. But is it? Yes. So thus, when interacting with Muslims, so if we were hanging out at dinner right now with a group of um, Palestinian Arab Muslims, could they, who are Christian, right? Jesus people, Jesus followers, loving the Lord Jesus, having great evangelical theology, and we sat to pray, could they perchance pray to Allah? Yes. It's very confusing uh, if you go to the Holy Land and you sit with Arab Christians and you've never experienced this and all of a sudden you're like, <gasps> I mean, it really is. It's really funny, especially with people who don't know. I try to always prepare people. You've got to get ready for this. This is, this is what could happen. <clears throat> now, so in the Arabic language, it's a generic term um, for God. Uh, so for the Arab Christian, this is very important, it does not imply any specific theological congruence between their respective understandings of God as Allah, Muslim, Quran, versus God, Yahweh, King Jesus, okay? So you, you have to like exit that. You're, our brains are uniquely Western, uniquely American. Um, you almost have to exit that in order to think like an Arab uh, Christian or a Palestinian Arab Christian. So, when, um, in fact, when I was there, one of the things I had to do is when you're talking with an Arab Christian and they say Allah, you almost have to translate it in your head. A better word would be Adonai or Jehovah or Yahweh or the God of the Bible, okay? Now, um, let me just make a, um, a, a clarification um, here. Jesus, uh, you may or may not know, he spoke primarily a Galilean dialect of Aramaic. That is not Arabic. I know it sounds similar, Aramaic. It's, that's an, kind of a, a Hebrew version. Um, Arabic is what we're talking about um, with a Palestinian um, uh, believer in this case. Uh, but he, Jesus, was likely versed in Hebrew um, and Arabic. Paul, the apostle, was likely versed in um, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Okay, so go back. Uh, you should know that if you're sitting with a Palestinian Arab Christian and they talk about God, in this day and age, they're usually, especially if they're in, at all culturally sensitive and they're dealing with us who are members of the West, they're not going to use that term Allah. But just because that term is used, it's generic for God in their language and does not declare any affinity to the God of the Quran. Okay, does that make sense? All right, but I think that's a very, like, that's a sticking point that we ought to understand. Now, so 
there are four challenging similarities um, between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. From a mathematical viewpoint, you could easily think that the two are the same from an existential viewpoint. Um, number two, uh, <clears throat> Muslims and Christians both believe in a God that is a creator, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and eternal. Number three, the use of the word Allah is confusing. And then number four, and this is wild and you may not know this, but both uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, for that matter, all came from a guy named Abraham. If, if you've been in um, the, like a Christian Sunday school, especially old school Sunday school like I grew up in, um, then you would sing this song. Anybody know what it is? Father Abraham had many sons. So, but, but here is what is amazing. I'm not going to go here, but you, you ought to make a note of Genesis 16. So I can just walk you through it really, really quickly. But here is the way that it worked. God showed up and told Abraham that you're going to have a son of promise, and he's going to populate the earth like the stars are in the heavens, um, and he's going to bless everyone on the face of the earth through Abraham. Now, here's the problem. Abraham doesn't even have a kid. Okay, so when God promises us something and we don't see it happening, what do we usually do? Well, we try to help God, right? I mean, that's what we do. We make mess happen. God obviously needs my help. He's promised, he's promised me a son through whom all the world is going to be blessed. I have no heir. I'm 86 years old at the time. He and Sarah are married, and they're having a marital fuss about the whole matter. And they take matters into their own hands. And Sarah says, here, sleep with Hagar, my maidservant, and you'll make a child, and that'll be the son of promise. And what does Abraham do? Being the stalwart, upstanding man that he is, he, he goes and takes care of business. And then he has a son named Ishmael. Now, here's what's interesting. It's another preach for another day. But it is 16 years from the birth of Israel, excuse me, the birth of Ishmael, uh, sorry, the birth of Ishmael to the birth of his promised son, Isaac. And he doesn't have Isaac until he is 99 years old. I mean, he and Sarah are going, we are old and crunchy, and this is not going to happen. This is like impossible. Okay, so Ishmael is born. You can look it all up in Genesis 16 to 22 if you'd like. But Ishmael is born, and God actually appears or sends an angel um, to Hagar, who had um, Ishmael, and promises that he is going to make Ishmael a great nation. Now, and he says he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, I quote. Read Genesis 16 if you like. And he's going to be at odds and fight with everybody, and everybody will fight with him, basically. And through Ishmael comes Islam. So from Abraham's seed, Abraham and Sarah um, have Isaac, and Abraham has Ishmael. So through Ishmael comes Islam, through Isaac comes Judaism, and through Judaism comes Christianity. So that the wrinkle that makes this very hard is all three faiths are Abrahamic. And what's crazy to me is we can go back to that stat I used at the beginning, 2.4 billion Christians alive on earth today finding their uh, ultimate root in Abraham and 1.9 billion Muslims also finding their root in Abraham. So it's this like, wow, Abraham really is Father Abraham. I won't sing the whole thing. <clears throat> okay, so that is, I think, the, 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 the four um, critical or challenging similarities that you ought to know. Now, let me pivot into the differences between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran, and I don't have time to articulate all the text, I don't have time to read you from the Quran, but you can trust me or you can look it up yourself. But um, 
Muslims uh, do not believe, and the Quran does not teach these essential Christian theological elements. Are you ready? They don't believe in the Trinity. Muslims do not believe in the fatherhood of God. Muslims do not believe in the eternal sonship of Christ Jesus. The Quran does not teach about the deity of Jesus. So Jesus is not equated with God. It does not teach, the Quran does not teach about Jesus as a redeemer. The Quran does not teach about the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, or the ascension of Christ. The Quran does not teach about the nature of God and his covenant with humanity. And then the last thing, that these are just the major things, there are others, but these are the major things. The person of the Holy Spirit is understood very differently in Islam. Generally, Muslims believe that the Holy Spirit is created by Allah as one of his angels. So that the whole Trinitarian thing, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, that theology does not exist. So let me like um, frame it up for you this way, because maybe this will help you understand. When a Muslim converts to Christianity, so according to John 3, if a Muslim comes and is born again, he exchanges his brokenness, he chooses to confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in his heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is God eternal who came, who paid the price for his sin or their sin, um, and, and then he gets to exchange his brokenness for the life of Christ in him and through him. If a Muslim converts to Christianity, do they continue to read the Quran? No. Never. I don't know any Muslim who's converted to Christianity who continues to read the Quran. They break with the, the adherence to the Quran, separate from it, and they adhere to instead the God of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Does that make sense? Now, flip that. By way of contrast, if a Jewish person so an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity. In a sense, they're not rejecting the old, they're completing the old. You see, you see what I'm saying? So when a, when a Muslim converts to Christianity, there's a rejection of the old. There's a full cut and a separation and a turning to the lordship of King Jesus and immersing oneself in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the revelation of King Jesus therein. But when a Jewish person um, uh, comes to faith, they even call it a completed Jew, you'll hear people say, right? So it's the completion of their, or the rounding out of their understanding, and they don't separate from the Old Testament, they just complete the old by joining in with it the, the new. You, you see how that is different? So is um, the God of the Quran different from the God of the Bible? 100%, absolutely. Okay, a couple statements about the Quran. Um, it, it, the Quran, there are some very powerful literary passages we could go to. Um, there are some true assertions in the Quran. In other words, most wisdom literature has some wisdom and truth. I mean, that's just the way it is. You can find truth in small form in almost every group and even cult all the way around the world, right? But what we're looking for is not just a kernel of truth, but the holistic truth, the fitting together of the old and new, the revelation of God from the beginning of time to the conclusion of time, um, the manifestation of God eternal onto earth as a king and rightful um, sovereign. 
<clears throat> Number three, I'd say there is some overlap between the contents of the Quran and the contents of the Bible. But I would say with unequivocal equivocal clarity and certainty, the two scriptures are 100% incompatible revelations. They are not the same. And you would be amiss and wrong and untruthful to say they're the same. Am I saying that clearly enough? Okay. So sometimes people um, use an argument that both visions of God are one or similar for the sake of building bridges, and I would say that is not helpful. Now, what we can say is both are Abrahamic faiths, um, both have a similar word for God in Arabic, um, and in that sense, there are already some bridges that are built. But are these two faiths the same? No, absolutely not. Let me say this also. I do not think it does anyone any good, much less the King of Kings and Lord of Lords or the Kingdom of Heaven any good when Christians are ugly or disparaging or disrespectful to Muslims. If a Muslim comes to my house, I'm going to welcome them in. I'm going to welcome them to eat with us and sit with us and talk to us and share with us and even pray with us. I, had a, I knew a, a, an older gentleman, and he would refer to Muslims as ragheads. And at some point I had to go, Hey, you gotta, you got to stop that. And he loved Jesus, but he was just operating out of this like old paradigm or something. I have no idea. And guess what he did? He stopped. But when Christians are ugly or hostile and fall short of declaring and demonstrating the love of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to anyone of other faiths, I think we fail and mar Christianity. Would I take our youth group back to hang out with the imam in Manhattan? Yeah. I probably wouldn't take the selfie and post it. (laughs) But I'd do it because I want our young people understanding who they are and who they're not, and I don't want them afraid of interacting intelligently about their faith. Stand on your own two feet. Understand that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the the revelation of him from Genesis to Revelation holds water and you can stand on it because it's solid ground. Okay, let me make a couple other comments um, and then I'm going to turn to my Joshua 5 passage and then how to pray in today's um, context. Uh, The Temple Mount um, in Jerusalem, so that is... The big uh, like gold dome in the center of Jerusalem, you probably see photos of, but that's called the Temple Mount. That is often likened, people can't prove it, and there's different thoughts on it, but essentially that is probably called Mount Moriah, and that is probably where Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac in accordance with God's will and way. Now, you go, and I don't want to open this too much, but why would God call Abraham, Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac? As a foretelling, so right at the Temple Mount in the heart of Jerusalem, that is where Abraham likely went to sacrifice his son. He built an altar, put his son on it, he bound him, you can read it if you want, took the knife, and it says an angel of the Lord showed up and grabbed Abraham's hand before the knife hit his son. Now why would God call Abraham to do that? Because it became a messianic picture of who? 
Jesus, who was going to come and was going to be bound and nailed and strung up on a tree on a hill in the city of Jerusalem, and that the wrath of God and the anger of God the Father would come down on King Jesus, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and extinguish all of God's anger and wrath against unrighteous humanity. Michael's sin, your sin, past, present, and future. So this was a this thing with Abraham becomes a prophetic foretelling of what God is going to do with His Son, King Jesus. Follow me? Okay. Currently, um, that Temple Mount or Mount Moriah is held by Muslims. And if, if you visited it um, today, as close as we could get is uh, the, the some, occasionally you can get in, but as close as we could likely get is the Western Wall, which is all, where all the Orthodox Jews are. And the Western Wall is this fascinating place, and it's as close as Orthodox Jews can get to the Holy of Holies. Uh, geographically. Now, what was the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple? It's really important. It's the place where the presence of God dwelled. So uh, uh, an Orthodox Jew is trying to get back to the place where um, the presence of God dwells. So if you go there right now, there's actually a, um, a, a rhythm in the Psalms, and you'll see um, the Hasidic Jews or the Orthodox Jews are often bending forward at the waist, and they're quoting the Psalms. And they're as close as they can get to that Western Wall because they want to be in the presence of Yahweh more than anything else. And what is amazing is for those of us who are in Jesus, you know that when Jesus resurrected from the tomb, the temple in Solomon's, uh, the, or excuse me, the curtain in Solomon's temple separating the Holy of Holies um, from the rest of the world was rent, meaning the Spirit of God, the presence of God came forth and is now available to any man, woman, or young person who turns their heart to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and yields their life to him. So we have access to the very presence that those Hasidic Jews are at that Western Wall looking for. You follow me? Okay. <clears throat> now, let me try to like tie all this uh, together. Um, I would say unequivocally, we as Jesus followers do not believe that the God of Christianity is the same as the God of Islam. We do not at all. The God of the Quran is not the same as the God of the Bible. Even when I write it, I even wrote it on my questions out there. You can see I'm going to use lowercase g for the God of the Quran. And what am I going to use for the God of the Bible? Uppercase, capital, that's right. Now, so our ultimate goal um, as Christians must be to proclaim the revelation of the Lord Jesus, speaking truth in love, um, but more often I would say let's start by building trust um, and gaining strength and potentially fragile, fragile relationships rather than going around stoking controversy. Yes? All right, let's pivot just a second. I'm heading to Joshua 5 if you want to turn there. <clears throat> All right, Hamas, what is it? What's happening in Israel? How do we pray? Um, I've got a dear friend uh, who is a Wycliffe Bible translator, and here's what he tells me. Um, and I, this has been validated by a number of people. Um, I just talked to another professor last week, and they validated the same thing. But in terms of Muslims, it is fair to say that 80% of Muslims are peace-loving Muslims. 20% are militant. 10% are radicalized. Let me say it again. 80% of Muslims are peace-loving. 20% are militant. 10% are radicalized. Hamas is what? Radicalized. That's exactly right. Militant means you've become isolated. It's like an us and them kind of thing. Um, and then the 80% are just peace-loving. But we as American Christians must be very careful that we don't judge um, all the vast 1.9 billion Muslims based on the 10%. 
In other words, are there some wacky Christians out there? Yes. Do they teach weird things? Yes. Do they do weird things? Yes. Do I want to be judged by them? No, it's, well, it's the same thing has to be said and hold true here. There are many Muslims who are just wonderful, dear people that haven't yet heard or understood the revelation of King Jesus and the God of the Bible. And who's going to tell them if we don't? Let's invite them to dinner. Okay. So Hamas is a militant Islamic group. Without a doubt, um, Iran is, is, is backing this group. Now, I'm not going to go much further than that, but I want, to, I want to open a paradox that I can't answer, but you've got to think about this. The fastest growing church on planet Earth today in 2023 is in what country? Iran. Okay, now you've got to get this because this transcends like Western human thought. When things are difficult, when things are ugly, when our life is on the line, when we're being persecuted, I don't understand it, but the kingdom of God rises up. Okay, so is Iran behind um, Hamas and the attacks on Israel? Yes, but don't forget that when God allows something like this to happen, and do I think I, he caused it? Absolutely not, but he is sovereign. So if God allows something like this, he is simultaneously working his kingdom, his will, and his way. And if you will stop long enough and perhaps even close your mouth long enough and begin to seek him and watch what he will, is doing, what you will discover is where the greatest evil on earth is triumphing the greatest good and the kingdom of God is always rising from the ashes because the kingdom of God is built on the King Jesus the original one who broke the back of death and hell and he is the resurrected Savior so here's the caution rather than us wringing our hands and fussing and crying and whatever you're doing, uh, begin to go, God, how are you working in and through this situation in Gaza right now? And how can I become a prayer participant with you in establishing your kingdom will and way in the earth? Because right now, the very country that is backing all this is experiencing the greatest revival on earth today. Muslims are turning to Jesus. Okay. So whose side is God on? Woo, whose side is God on? All right, let's read Joshua 5. <coughs> Joshua 5, verse 13. With this question, whose side is God on? Now, I guess just quick background. Um, Moses led the people out of Egyptian slavery, what should have taken a couple weeks um, the Israelites got to the promised land, which is now modern-day Israel, and they were supposed to go into it, but instead they sp sent spies. The, the spies got focused on natural humanity instead of on God and went, oh my gosh, these people are like really big. We're like grasshoppers. They're giants. They're going to kill us. We don't want to go in. We don't trust God, so we're not going to go into the promised land. We'd rather live in the desert and camp out in the stink for 40 years. And that's what they did. Okay. So Moses, uh, after 40 years, um, Moses has just died. Joshua has been commissioned as the new leader, um, and he's taking the people across the Jordan River into this promised land, Israel, as we know it um, today. So now let's pick up. And Joshua has just won a couple of crazy battles. So he's probably got a little strut behind him. You hear me? Okay. Joshua 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was nearing Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, 
But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I have now come. Present active. I am. Exodus 3, God introduces himself to Moses as I am. Jesus, when we started this whole thing out at the beginning, and where was it? Uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So neither, verse 14, he replied, but as commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. I am. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, let me see if I can drag all of this together. There's two different schools of thought on who this was. Some people say an angel, but Joshua bowed down and worshiped an angel, the angel, and angels don't let anybody worship them. They always worship who? God, Jesus. So I think, and a lot of scholars would agree, but I think that this is a pre-incarnate revelation of King Jesus. So King Jesus shows up, and Joshua rolls up to him, and kind of arrogantly, he's won a few big battles, and he goes, you can almost see Joshua holding his sword, commander of the armies, right? Are you for us or are you against us? This is a little bit like today when we belt out, God, are you for Israel or are you for Palestine? God, are you for America? God, are you for the Democrats or the Republicans? Joshua saw, and when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? What's the response? Neither. Now, with this reply is the holy revelation, the righteous revelation, the justice revelation of this holy God. And I think behind this carries that if Joshua did not take off his shoes and get on his face, he probably would have died. So the only response that Joshua has, he is standing there. Are you for us or against us? And all of a sudden he says neither. And all of a sudden you can just imagine Joshua melting under the revelation that this is some way a revelation of Yahweh God. And so he immediately gets on his face before him and prostrates himself and begins to repent and align himself with God. Now you see the arrogance and you could even go, uh, there is an arrogance in many of us as Western Christians who we wanna go, God, are you on our side? God, are you going to win? God, are you going to do this thing? And I think oftentimes God would say, take off your shoes, get on your face, humble yourself because the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So the question should be, and it should always be, is not is God for you or against you, but are you for him? see the switch. We get all worked up. In fact, there's a lot of branches even of Christianity who they, they want to have more of God, more of you, more of you, Holy Spirit. More, that, and that's fine on one sense, but it's the wrong question. The question is how much does God have of you? You hear me? Because when God has you, you will also have him. You want to experience the power of God, the presence of God, the voice of God. You want to experience him moving in and through your life. Then you get the things that are impeding him having all of you out of the way. 
and you get on your face, take off your shoes, bow your knee, bow your face before him, and you call him Lord and God. Now, when we approach this, I think the only way to pray is, God, your kingdom come and your will be done. Anything else is our presumptive understanding of what God wants to do on the earth today. And there's not a person I've ever met who can accurately divide revelation in the times of the end. There's not a person under the sun who can tell us exactly what's gonna happen and how it's gonna happen. That is his business and his alone. Our job is to join with him in praying for his kingdom, his will, and his way. So when I open my mouth and begin to pray, um, what I am oftentimes hearing as other people pray is this great fallacy where we're praying our will and our way. You hear me? Go back to Jesus in the garden. I don't want to go to the cross. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One more statement, and then I'm going to go to this call to prayer. One of the benefits of the last 30 or 40 years in America is that we have re-encountered a personal God, a conversational God, a God that loves us and speaks to us. You'll even hear people call him Abba, like Jesus referred to him, right? Father. So it's this, it's an intimate knowing. But one of the risks in that type of intimate knowing is you can lose the revelation of a holy God, a righteous God, a a God of justice, a God who when you go, are you on my side? He says, take off your shoes and get on your face lest you fall under the sword of the Spirit. Okay, I opened all kinds of stuff for you there, didn't I? I'm going to put up two calls to prayer. Worship team, maybe y'all would come back out. We're going to pray for Israel. We're going to pray for Hamas. We're going to pray for Palestine. When I was in um, Israel, I had the chance um, to work, uh, to meet the um, dean of the Nazareth Evangelical College and Seminary. David, would you put that up behind me? And so here's what is beautiful about the Nazareth Evangelical College and Seminary. They issued a call to prayer. Now, here's what I want you to get. On the board, evangelical college and seminary. What are they teaching people? Come on, Jesus. Let me, let me just read you their mission. Nazareth Evangelical College trains men and women to follow Christ faithfully and to be equipped and qualified for serving in the church in the Holy Land, enabling her to have a powerful influence on society according to God's purposes. Now on the board of this seminary are both Palestinian, Arab, Christians and Jewish Christians. So what comes together here, they just issued a call to prayer. And what comes together here in the most, I think, beautiful way is how our um, kingdom first people, not just Jewish first or Palestinian first, but kingdom first people in the Holy Land, in Nazareth, in the place where Jesus grew up, how are they calling us to pray today? Here's what they said. May God grant us the courage to love even if it hurts. May God protect our community and help us be peacemakers. May God grant us wisdom to our leaders to preserve life and dignity for all people. May we continue to train and empower both men and women to be peacemakers and followers of the King of Peace despite all of its challenges. 
and fifthly, for all of those who are suffering and those who have lost loved ones. David, put the next one up. I'm going to go a couple minutes long. Will you give me two or three more minutes? Yes? Okay. David, will you put the next one up? All right. Next group, I got the same call to prayer from them. This is the Nazareth Trust, and their whole mission is healing in the name of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Healing in the name of Jesus. Here's what they issued a call for. God's comfort and consolation for all those grieving the loss of loved ones from the horrific violence of the past few days. Healing for those who have been wounded and are recovering in hospitals across the country and in Gaza and for the hospital staff treating them. Number three, healing of hearts and minds from the deep trauma that people have and will continue to suffer. Number four, a speedy end to the current hostilities that it will not escalate and expand to other areas. Number five, God's peace and protection for all staff, all families, for the safety and security of all the facilities of the Nazareth Trust. Number six, for wisdom and grace for the leadership of the Nazareth Trust as we provide leadership and direction to the staff and to the stakeholders of the Nazareth Trust during this conflict. And finally, God's provision for the financial and other resources of the various entities of the Nazareth Trust in this unprecedented time of upheaval in the economy and security of Israel. Now, is God for Israel? Of course he is. Is God for America? Of course. Is God for Palestine? Of course. Is God even for that the group that's operating called Hamas and Iran would choose to come to him? Yes. But don't elevate being for a country of Israel above the kingdom and the will and the way of a revelation and transcendent holy God. You hear me? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to end in prayer. And I would love for you to stand with me. You can come up here and pray. But you can pray any of the things that we have up. David, would you go back to the first slide? It's a little easier to pray prayer team, if you would come up and be available. But I would love for us to begin to call out that the God would use the crisis that we are in, not just in the Middle East, but nationally and around the world, to birth another great awakening, that people would turn back to him, understanding the God of the Bible and the richness of his love. Will you join me in that? Come on. I'm preaching better than you're responding. Will you join me in that? If you, if you want to come up here and pray, let's pray. I'm going to ask these guys to lead us, and then I'll close us in just a minute. Father, I think that deep in my heart, I believe that if revival tarries, or if an awakening on the earth tarries, it is because we as Christians are busy saying, are you for us or against us? instead of us aligning wholly with you, offering our bodies, our wills, our minds, our emotions wholly to you. So Father, on this particular Sunday, we cry out to you for Israel. We cry out to you that you would have your kingdom, your will, and your way. Lord, we cry out to you for Hamas, that you would use them to work your kingdom, your will, and your way. We cry out to you for the families that have lost loved ones, for the people who are in transit and have lost their homes. Lord, we cry out to you for the people who are lost. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is resurrect the broken and bring something beautiful out of that which has been destroyed. And Father, I pray that you would use the current suffering to establish the lordship and kingship of Christ Jesus on the earth today. Father, I pray for the Americas. I pray for the United Kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would visit us again with a great awakening, that you would cause us to turn from our selfish self-centeredness where we demand that you be on our side and instead we get on your side. 
Father, I pray that you would cultivate in us humble hearts, hearts that are willing to get on our face before you, our knees before you, taking off our shoes because we're standing on holy ground. God, I pray that you would birth something new in our hearts, perhaps birth something old, 2,000 some years old, in our hearts. And Father, I pray that you would call us as New Testament believers to be carriers and participants with you in establishing the lordship and kingship of Christ Jesus on the earth today. God, we praise you and we dedicate our hearts, our lives, our emotions, our wills, and our ways to you. And Father, I pray that we would always be found furthering the law of love because you are love, always. Father, we worship you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we close here, if you'd like special prayer, some of us will be down here. If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to this Jesus, don't walk out of here without doing it. I'm going to hang right here. Come pray with me. Give your life to him. Be born again. Start afresh. And as you go, carry the lordship and the presence and the love of our eternal God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening today and being part of the Saltbox online community. If we can pray for you in any way, please leave us a comment below or connect with us through saltboxchurch.com. Remember, just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.